Today's message uh, is the third in our series of messages on sex in the city, and the message today is entitled Touched. But before I can begin the, this message, I must recognize my spiritual father, my father in the faith, and my father in the ministry, and his lovely wife who are present in our sanctuary today. And I just want Dr. Carter and Mrs. Carter, will you stand? Amen. 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 And, and then, my brothers and sisters, I, I, I have to ask the fountain of new life to do this, because if it were not for Dr. Carter, Mrs. Carter, we would not be here today. So I want everybody to just stand on your feet and show God some thanks and some praise for both of them who played such a significant role in my life. Amen. And my ministry is simply an extension of his. God bless you. Doc, it's so good to see you. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Kanisha, for singing, leading us in that song to our dancers. The song that was so beautifully sung by Sister Carr tells of a man named John who sexually abused a woman by infecting her with the AIDS virus without disclosing that he was positive. When sex is done correctly, the lasting results can be wonderful. When done incorrectly, the potential for trauma is enormous. When we rank sins, and we should not rank sins, but when we do rank sins, Sexual abuse is at the top of the list. What happens in the mind and the body of a person who has been sexually abused is mind-bending. Mind becomes filled with anger and rage, shame, guilt, confusion, disappointment. And if the perpetrator is a believer, they develop a disdain for anything that's related to God. Here's some definitions of sexual abuse. And again, uh, this could be a bit graphic, but there's no other way to talk about this subject matter with, without being somewhat graphic. Uh, sexual abuse, also referred to as molestation, is forcing the forcing of undesired sexual behavior on another person. It is a type of maltreatment that refers to the involvement of the child in sexual activity to provide sexual gratification or financial benefit to the perpetrator, including contacts for sexual purposes, molestation, statutory rape, prostitution, pornography, exposure, or incest. Sexual abuse is when sex is non-consensual, it's not agreed upon. Or a person forces another person to have sex against their will. Brothers and sisters, there are some things in life that just should not happen. And sexual abuse is one of them. 
There is no adequate explanation, rationalization, justification for it. And forgiving sexual abuse is not easy. Shaking off the lingering effects of it is even more difficult. The main character in today's message, and the message is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 13, the main character is a young girl by the name of Tamar. Now, for the past two weeks, we've been talking about Tamar, but this is a different Tamar. The first Tamar was uh, in Genesis. This is a different Tamar. And this Tamar is the daughter of King David. Tamar is a virgin. She's, at, she's a girl who's at the top, at the very top of the socioeconomic ladder. She has a very bright future. She's cute, caring, uh, clever. She comes from a good home. She's the king's daughter. Nothing will be withheld from her. Promise personified. Let's just stop right there. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became frustrated and obsessed to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and to make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. And David sent word to Tamar at the palace. Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough and kneaded it and made bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said, and so everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? How could I rid myself of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools of Israel. Speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. And he called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. And so his servant put her out and bolted the door. And she was wearing a richly ornamented robe 
for this was the kind of garment that the virgin daughters of the king wore. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornamented robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. And when David the king heard all this, he was furious. He never did anything, but he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, neither good nor bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister. Poor sexual decisions are rooted in uncontrolled obsessions. The text tells us, tells us that Amnon was obsessed with his sister Tamar. The loss, the loss, the loss of virginity should never occur under these circumstances. 90% of child sexual abuse occurs when the perpetrator is known in some way. 68% of abused persons are abused by family members. Family members often know who the abuser is and they know that the abuser is an abuser and they protect the abuser and leave others vulnerable. Tamar never saw this trap coming. Poor friendships will reject proper parenting. Amnon had godly parents, but he had an ungodly friend. And Amnon's friend was deceitful, what my mother calls sneaky. And sexual abuse only occurs when someone is sneaky. When someone is pretending to be trustworthy, when in reality they cannot be trusted at all. Amnon would have been better off if he would have followed his home training rather than following the advice of his homeboy. Parenting plays a profound role in shaping our views about sex. David was not paying attention to what was going on. He left Tamar alone and unprotected with Amnon. Everybody knew something was wrong with Amnon, but they weren't saying anything about it. If you recall in the story, when Absalom recognized that something was emotionally wrong with his sister Tamar, the first thing he says to her, has Amnon been with you. Often we allow the perpetrator to coexist in the presence of weak and innocent lambs. David should have been more aware. He should have sent Aunt Esther or Grandma Ida over to Am Amnon's house to prepare that food. Somebody say amen. Parents must monitor who is alone with our children. And in addition, we must pay close attention to who is around them and what they hear, what they see, and what they touch. Dating, somebody say dating. 
dating should be supervised. And when unsupervised, it should be discussed. When our children return home from a date, a parent should inquire as to what took place on the date. You should ask, what happened? Did you hold hands? Did you kiss him? How long was the kiss? Did you hold her? And then you need to, in addition to listening to those responses, because they're not always going to contain the whole truth, you need to be able to look them over. You need to inspect them to see if things look well, because sexual abuse is usually progressive. When the violator creates a comfort zone for everybody, and when everybody's guard is down, then they act upon the innocent. Ch parents are expected to model proper behavior before their children. Somewhere in Amnon's memory is the scandal that rocked his household. His dad was found guilty of touching another man's wife, and the result was a pregnancy and a murder. When parents display poor sexual choices before their children, the model creates conflict in the child's minds. Are you all here with me? Children don't learn what they're instructed to do. Children learn what they live. They learn what they see. And parents must not parade sexual deviance before their children. It weakens a child's view of abstinence and virginity, and then it causes them to compromise even the values that they know intrinsically are right. And what it does, it makes our children susceptible to poor sexual choices. Parents are expected to teach their children about sexual responsibility and its rewards. In other words, sex is not a bad thing, but sex must be handled and addressed responsibly. And if it is handled responsibly, usually there are some rewards. And somebody ought to say amen. amen. Now, sexual predators are usually relatives or friends of the family. Sexual predators are usually relatives or friends of the family. Sexual predators are cunning and conniving. They're not going to be upfront and obvious. Sexual predators have no compassion on their object or the object of their obsession. They have no compassion. They have no feeling and no interest. And parents must be vigilant in protecting their children. Yvette Jackson lived with her mother and her stepfather as a little girl. At the age of 13, she was startled one evening as her stepfather eased into her bed. Uh, shocked by this new uh, occurrence, had never occurred before, she immediately questions his presence in her bed, to which he responded, everyone in our family sleeps together so that we can watch out for one another and protect each other. Now, at 
the tender age of 13, she was not capable of processing his words and the danger that was between each syllable. She did not have the ability to understand that what he was saying to her was loaded with poison. And so he continued to slip into her bed night after night, sometimes infrequently, but he continued until one day he raped her. She was told, of course, to keep it quiet. And as a result, she eventually blocked the whole thing out of her mind, the whole thing, the rape, the pregnancy, the abortion, the eerie silence in her house when people looked at her, but no one said anything. The fidgety, the fidgety, the fidgeting that went on when she looked in her mother's eyes, all silent. She knew something wasn't right, but she couldn't stand up to her family because after all, no one would believe her. And even if they believed her, they would not come to her defense. Some 30 years later, after being grown and married, she knows something is wrong with her, but she can't figure it out. She picks up the phone and calls a cousin back in the islands, and she tells her cousin her feelings, her experience, and the memories that she still has in her mind. And her cousin confirms that what you're feeling, what you're sensing is correct. It's not a lie. It's not your imagination. It not only happened to you, but it happened to me also. And it happened to several of our cousins and other relatives. And her cozy little island home had become a place where secrets were harbored. Secrets that hurt others because they never were exposed. The text says about Amnon, he wouldn't listen. And being much stronger, he raped her. Sexual trauma is absolutely unforgettable. Sexual abuse can be blocked out, but it cannot be forgotten. Sexual trauma influences how we see the world and how we see ourselves. We begin to define ourselves by that moment or the week or the months or the years of abuse that we were subjected to. And therefore, our total definition of ourselves, no matter how high or how much we accomplish, we define ourselves by that experience that devastated our self-esteem. But there is good news. Jesus died on a cross. The Bible says that he bore the sins of the world. And the good news is that God can heal us from sexual trauma. Just as God can heal from cancer or diabetes or common cold, God has the power to heal us from sexual trauma. Paul understood what it meant to be traumatized, and he understood what it meant to preach and teach people who had experienced trauma. And to the Ephesian congregation, Paul says to them in the third chapter, he says, for this reason, I pray, to, I pray for you 
that you being rooted and established in love. And and listen to his prayer. He says, I pray that you may have power. Somebody say power. You see, you don't need power when you have power. You need power when you're weak. He says, I pray that you may have power together with all the saints. In other words, he's saying, I'm praying that your power won't be individual power, but your power would be corporate power and that your power would be able to first not overcome first, but first to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of Christ is. I know something has interrupted the peace that passes all understanding, but I want you to know that in spite of that, God's love is high and it is deep and it is rich towards you. And he says, and I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, you cannot intellectualize the love of God. He loves us beyond our cognitive skills. Can somebody say amen? And that you may be filled, somebody say filled, filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, there's a void that happens when you're hurt like this. He said, but I'm praying that God would fill you not with things and trinkets and money and popularity, but that you would be filled with all of the fullness of God. And then he says this, he says, I have prayed for you, but there are limitations to my prayer because I don't always know how to pray for you. I don't always know what to say. And when my prayers uh, demonstrate their finitude now unto him that is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. In other words, where my prayer has limits, God can do immeasurably. The King James Version says exceedingly more than all that I can ask or imagine. In other words, God will bless you when you don't even see a blessing coming. And then he says before prayer is answered, before there's any sign or signal that God has heard or that God is listening, Paul says this, to him be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations. In other words, what he's saying, I'm praying that God would stop something right here in you and that the future generation will be blessed because of what God is doing in you now. When one has been sexually abused, we need God's strength. We don't need God's strength to overcome. We don't need God's strength um, to excel, but we first need God's strength to speak out. Absalom, notice how silence is used as a weapon. Absalom and certainly Amnon told Tamar to keep silent. Act like nothing has happened. Everything's going to be all right. Time heals all wounds. Be silent. But my sisters and my brothers, if you fail to speak, you protect the perpetrator and you put others at risk of experiencing the same horror that you experienced. Sometimes we cannot change what has happened to us, but God can use us 
to make a difference in what might happen in somebody else's life. The righteousness of God requires redemption, repentance, and reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, somebody say in Christ, he is a new creation. God is so good that it blows my mind. It says, if anyone is in Christ, this is not just those who are victimized, but also for the perpetrators of the pain. If even the perpetrator of the pain submits himself or herself to Christ, the Bible says that we are new creations. It says the old has gone and the new has come. And it says, and all this is from God who has reconciled himself to us through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. But you know, it's an amazing thing how we read this verse. You know, I often hear people talk about ministry and their call to ministry and my desire to be in ministry. And I see the conflict and the confusion and the bitterness and the rage that coexists with their desire to be in ministry. But God clarifies our call to ministry even in this verse is that he has given all of us the ministry of reconciliation. Somebody say amen. In other words, it is not the will of God that we continue to be at odds with one another. And what Jesus did and what God did, they demonstrated that because the Bible says that God was reconciling the world unto himself in Christ. In other words, he's not asking us to do anything that he has not done himself. And so what God is calling us to do is to seek ways of being reconciled. Giving our lives to Jesus can make the biggest difference. And then giving this area of our life to Jesus can be a bigger difference. A redeemed life is a victorious life. And Christianity is the only faith, the only religion, the only belief system that promises you this. That God will take the evil that has happened to you and that he will bring good out of it. I wish I had one or two Bible students in the house who remember that Paul said in Romans that I am persuaded that all things work together for the good to those who love the Lord. An abuser can be changed by the power of God. And when God saves us, he saves us from sin. Sexual abuse is sinful. And the only way to address it is to confess it, repent from it, and to allow God through the power of the Holy Spirit to change our behavior. God can give us the courage to face our sins and to face the people that we have hurt. And we face them with acknowledgments and apologies. There's a place, 1 John tells us, to confess our faults one to another. And then to pray for one another that we may be healed. And when we have the courage to confess our faults to those who we have hurt, the Bible says that the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous avails much. The road to recovery is a road of service to others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 
Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. In other words, what Paul is saying, when God comforts you, he's comforting you with an extra dose because he wants you to have enough power to comfort somebody else who goes through the same thing. Aren't you happy that you serve the Lord? And when he comforts you, he not only is thinking about you, but he's thinking about how he's going to use you to be a blessing to somebody else, such as Rebecca Jewell, a 20-year-old woman who was sexually abused by her stepfather for five years, but she has broken her silence with the hope of helping others. Another mother who has a seven-year-old daughter who was sexually abused by a family member who was infected with HIV. She does not clam up and shut herself up in a house, but she's speaking out because she wants to help others. And my brothers and sisters, even when we've gone through these dark nights and these terrible trials, the truth is God will still use us to bless and to help somebody else. You know, I want people to join our church. I want people to be members of the Fountain of New Life. But there is something more important than church membership. Jesus said that I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Sexual abuse is horrible, but God can help us with it. And on top of that, we can help each other. Today, we're here to declare gospel that's able to help us. And the wonderful thing about the gospel, it has saved others who are willing to help. Even within our body, there are brothers and sisters who are professional counselors, Christian men and women, who have consented to donating their time and volunteering to providing counseling and help for those who might need it. We're going to extend an invitation and we're going to have an altar call. But I know the sensitive nature of a subject like this. And I know everyone would not feel comfortable walking down an aisle. And that's okay. It's good if you have the courage and the strength to come. That's good. That's a step towards healing. But we all have to take different steps. The key is that you get there. And there's a confidential number you can dial. 786-202-5645. You can call that number and somebody will call you back and point you in a direction where you can get some help. Because isn't that what the church is all about? When you boil it all down to it. It's about being a blessing, trying to help. Let's stand to our feet. God, we thank you today. So we facing a difficult